0: Good morning, OBC. I've just got to tell you how much I miss you guys. I've been having phone calls with many of you, and I, I know that that God's in control, that everyone's safe right now, as far as I understand. And uh, it's just, while it's been a bittersweet time, it's been really neat to see you guys as a church engaging one another, calling, checking in, uh, being the church throughout the week. There are two important updates that I want you to be aware of. The first is, um, you may have seen the email about the fireside chats, but in case you didn't, Monday through Friday, the goal is to put out uh, just a short thought, whether a devotion or a reading or something like that, to give us hope during the, this time of crisis. So check in with those, and um, I think that will bring us together as a spiritual community. Another thing is, Monday through Friday, we are also looking to pray together remotely at 3 p.m. Because even though we're separated right now, we can still come together by the power of the Holy Spirit and and lift up our country, uh, lift up one another, lift up our community in prayer. Well, we're going to continue in the Scriptures, and this morning I thought it would be great to get back into Luke because... Look, we're we're watching the news cycle, and we've been thinking about this COVID nineteen pandemic a lot. But wouldn't it be good to just look at the scriptures this morning and, and hear from God's word? Uh, so, open your Bibles, Luke seven thirty six through fifty. As you think about this text, I want you to think about how. Great revolutions has taken place in world history, particularly even in American history. Uh, Great revolutions tend to have a scandalous moment that turns the normal order upside down. And that scandalous moment leads to great change. I was thinking about when a German monk nailed 95 theses to a door that scandal starts off a Protestant Reformation. Or when Bostonians dressed in costumes dump tea in Boston Harbor. Again, that sets off a, a revolution. Or how about when Ruby Bridges, the first African American child to integrate in a, a segregated school system. Again, that was considered a scandal, and yet it brought about great change, and I would say needed change. Well, Jesus is a revolutionary, if there was ever a revolutionary. He turned many of the the social norms upside down in order to change a, a religious system that had created barriers for people so that those people would be far from God. In this story that we're going to look at this morning, there is a a woman, and uh, she breaks all of the social taboos. She is uh, a woman who has a checkered past. She is in a profession. Let's just be honest, we wouldn't want our daughters to be engaging in. And she's placed up next to Mr. Squeaky Clean himself. He is a a religious leader, and he represents all of the pharisaical morality and integrity. He's the poster child for it. So we pick up this story at a dinner gathering, and oddly enough, as we pick up, Jesus finds himself at this gathering with a Pharisee. And if you look at the verses before it, Jesus had actually uh, just basically rebuked the Pharisees, and now he's at dinner with them. Isn't that odd? So here's the this, this scene. Simon, the Pharisee, it's his house. He's a well-to-do guy. They're in his home, which is built around an inner courtyard. So that would be an outdoor setting. They're sitting around a table with low-lying couches. It's a beautiful place. They're reclining at the table with their feet behind them. Now, why would you do that? Well, I think we get why you would do that, because feet are disgusting. And so anyone in any time period does not want feet at the table. Now, you have to understand that this little dinner gathering is awkward even before the fireworks begin. Jesus walks into Simon's house, and it's like an episode out of Mean Girls. Simon intentionally embarrasses Jesus. He's rude, he's mean, he's calculated, he's passive-aggressive because he wants to put this upstart Nazarene rabbi in his place. How does he do this? Well, think about it like this. Imagine for a moment with me that you are invited to go to someone's house. You walk in through the door, there's a group of people gathered together, their backs are turned to you, they don't even acknowledge that you've come in the house, they don't offer to take your coat, they don't offer you something to drink. So you come in and and after a while you just simply say, well, can I use your bathroom please? And then the guest looks angry that you've disturbed their conversation and says, well, I guess you can, go find it yourself how would you respond to that, a friend? I don't know about you, but I would say to myself, well, I know that I'm not welcome here. And then I would go outside, and when no one's looking, key their car. Don't actually do that. That's not what Jesus does in this story. In fact, after this rude welcome, the intensity begins to pick up as he's sitting around the table. The tension in the room is at a five. And in a woman who's observing the dinner, steps out, and the tension becomes a 10. You see, it wasn't uncommon for people to stand around and observe the who's who eat their lunch or dinner and uh, have their conversations. It's kind of similar to our desire to watch reality TV shows like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, which, by the way, just a little side note here, I don't get why people watch that, but, you know, whatever floats your boat but here's the deal. You never spoke or interacted or interrupted the dinner guests. You could watch, but you do not disturb. She disturbed big time. And, and the language in verse 37 tells us that she's a woman of the city who is a sinner, which is uh, a nice way of saying that she's involved in a trade that's permissible only in Las Vegas. And for a guy like Simon... He's watching this all take place, and it's like being locked in a bad dream that you cannot wake from. If she comes too close, she might spiritually infect everyone in the room, but she keeps coming. She's wearing this little alabaster flask around her neck. She stands behind Jesus's feet. Now, you could tell she's nervous, but she's looking at Jesus with this like, frenzied on respect. And, and to his horror, the woman just starts crying. And, and it's not just like a, a, a little cry. I mean, this is ugly cry. Like, the kind of cry where, like, snots running out of your nose, tear droplets falling from her face, and they start actually falling onto Jesus' dirty feet. And then, she did the unthinkable Even for a woman of her reputation, in broad daylight, she lets down her hair. Starts wiping her hair on Jesus' feet, kissing his feet, and anointing his feet. Now, I'm going to keep this PG because I know we're home with our families. But in the ancient Jewish writings, the Talmud, essentially for a woman to let down her hair, that would be is socially inappropriate, it would cause the same type of shock value as if she had disrobed. And not only that, but in this traditional Middle Eastern society, a bride on her wedding night lets down her hair for the first time only for her husband. Wow. Inwardly, Simon's jaw is touching the floor. This isn't just tense for him this is now turned to crude and vile and let me paraphrase verse 39 for you says what kind of prophet would let a woman like her come near him i mean i've heard a lot of glowing reviews about this jesus guy he seems to be doing a lot of miracles it seems like people are connecting with his teaching but he is no prophet this is just disgusting now that simon is good and scandalized Jesus knows that he has a captive audience. Now notice this. Simon discounts that Jesus is a prophet while Jesus is reading his mind. Uh, verse 40, And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Simon's thinking and his said, what in the world? Where is this going? And so Jesus begins to tell him about a benevolent money lender. I love his ability to connect with normal life because... We've all dealt with this in any time in history, you know, the idea of being under debt, creditors calling, bills piling up, and what kind of pressure that can bring into a person's world. So in verse 41 and 42, he tells this story. One owes 500 denarii, that's about a year's wage. Another one owes 50 denarii, that's about a month's wage. Both of them can't pay. He cancels the debt of both. Now the question he asks, which will love him more? Simon answers, probably begrudgingly, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he says, you have judged rightly. Now, hold on a second here. When Jesus says, you have judged rightly, he does not mean, Simon, you got the answer right. He means something more like this. According to your standard for evaluating the world, you are being consistent Let's just step back for a moment. Is Simon actually right here? Who should love Jesus more? Let's change the analogy a little bit. Let's think of it like this. Imagine that you're in a class and there's two students and they take a test. One student fails the test with a 40% mark, the other student fails the test with a 5% mark. The question you have to ask yourself, if the teacher walks in the room, scores the test, they both fail and says, I, out of my own goodness, am willing to pass both of you, which student should love the teacher more? Well, they should both love the teacher more, because the consequence of failing the test is equal for both of the students. doesn't matter if you're a 40% student or a 5% student. You're both failing and retaking the test again. So if the 40% student looks over at the 5% student and says, ha ha, I'm so much smarter than you are, what difference does it make? Who cares? You're still taking the test over again, dummy. And if the 5% student takes the teacher up on the offer and the 40% student says, Well, I'm going to let my grade speak for itself because I don't want to be put in the same category as the 5% student, who actually wins at the end of the day? That's the problem in this story, isn't it? That's Simon's problem. He lives in a world of spiritual social distancing. Now, the social distancing that we're dealing with right now, I mean, that's a good thing. That's in order to protect life. But spiritual social distancing, always bad. Always. In his mind, some people were big sinners. They're infected. You wouldn't avoid those kind of people. But, But people like me, like Simon, well, I'm a little sinner. In fact, I think he was probably... A little offended that Jesus insinuated that he was a $5,000 debtor. In Simon's mind, he was a $5 debtor. And you know know what it's like when you owe someone five bucks. You really just don't feel like you owe them anything. You're basically square. And so Simon's going to get to heaven, and he thinks in his mind, I'm going to stand before God and say, you know, come on, God. Are we really going to squabble over five bucks? It's five bucks. It's not that big of a deal. And you know why he thought of himself as a $5 sinner? Because he likes making up the rules to the religious game. He likes the type of rules that are extreme, strict, and uncompromising for the person sitting across the table. But for himself, he likes flexibility. He likes escape clauses. This is what we all do. This is why we need to live in a universe where God makes the rules, not people. When God makes the rules, there's a a norm of moral order that everyone is held accountable to. When we make the rules, well, here's what happens. When we make the rules, we set up spiritual social distancing systems so that some people are small sinners, others are large sinners, and the small sinners don't have to interact with the large sinners. We make the rules that favor us. So Simon in this story needs to be scandalized to be shocked out of his false sense of security. That's why we see scandal in the story. Think about it. Grace is scandalous. Are you telling me that God is willing to forgive just anyone? I mean, anyone? Anybody? In that, he, 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 I get it. I mean, we're not as bad as some people. That might be true. But, but, But grace is not about big sinners and little sinners. Grace is not about spiritual social distancing. Grace is about God forgiving a sin debt that we could not repay. And and let me just be clear here. No one's a $5 debtor. We're all like that person that's receiving that second or third notice that the mortgage company is about to come in and foreclose upon us. Why? Well, because of our sin. Because we disregarded the God of the universe who created the universe. We didn't acknowledge Him. We thought that we could make up the rules. We took His right away to be God So the spiritual bills all of our life have just been piling up day after day, hour after hour as we live in this way. But here's the power of the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus, the good banker, personally driving to your house. And rather than foreclosing and throwing you into the streets, Jesus pulls out his own checkbook, writes the check by laying his life down on the cross, and pays off every single bill that you owe. I love what Paul says in Colossians 2.14. This is the NET version. Jesus has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Now let me ask you a question. How would you respond To a good banker like Jesus, if you received a call one day and the bills were piling up and, and that banker said, you don't owe a penny anymore. I've paid the debt. You would be over the moon. You'd be calling everyone you no, you'd be like, I can't believe that this banker did this for me. And that's why as we look at this story, friend, we need to be more like this big sinner, this sinful woman, than Mr. Squeaky Clean. I like that question that Jesus asks, who will love Jesus more? I mean, that is a great heart check question. Because if you love Jesus little, then it means that you've misunderstood the gospel or taken the gospel for granted. If you love him much, it is because you understand all that he has done for you. And this woman, she gets it. Let's put ourselves into her shoes for a moment and just just imagine what it must have felt like to be this woman. You're the town pariah. You are an outcast. Certain women hate you. I mean, every time they see you, they glare because they know what you've done and who you've done it with. And the religious elite, they, they walk around like you are spiritually infected, that there is no way back to God. And By making decisions you've made along the way, maybe, maybe even out of necessity, maybe your husband died or you're on the brink of being destitute, or there was just a series on, of unfortunate choices I don't know, and frankly, it's not my business. She had a big, fat, Scarlet letter pinned to her clothes, and she knew she was going to hell, and she knew that everyone in that community was glad she was. But then, she hears a report of a Nazarene rabbi who is preaching a radical message and healing people. And, and she goes to one of these large gatherings, and she doesn't go into the crowd. She sits on the fringe because she knows what people will do if she starts rubbing shoulders with them. And as she's sitting there off to the periphery, she begins to hear this message that changes in her heart, that God is a good father, and if you'll turn your life to him, you will be forgiven of your sins and I've come here to preach good news to the outcast. And she thinks to herself, I'm that outcast. This is me. She had never considered that God would be a good father. She was resigned to her freight. But, friends, here's the deal about this woman she didn't need to be convinced of the first part of the gospel. You know, the first part of the gospel is that we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. No one needed to tell her that. She knew that. But she couldn't imagine the second part of the gospel. We are far more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is what Jesus preached. God loves her. God desires to be in relationship with her. God is waiting with wide open arms to receive her. I mean, can you think about that? Maybe, maybe you're in the same place as this woman that God loves you. God desires to be in relationship with you. God is waiting with open arms for you. And the Bible says, what do you need to do? You only need put your faith in Jesus and you will be saved. The scripture says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now think about the radical change that this message produces in her heart. Here she was feeling rejected by God and learning that she was accepted. Here she was thinking of God as this cosmic judge who she dreaded facing. And now she learns of a benevolent father who is waiting with his arms wide open, and and it just changed everything for her. She knew that she had to do something with this message. She learns that Jesus is meeting at the house of one of those Pharisees who wouldn't even look her in the eyes. And equipped with a little alabaster flask of oil around her neck that was common for women. She goes to the house, the gathering, in order to do something nice for the one who preached grace to her. Now, this flask of oil was very precious to her. It, It may have represented all that she had in terms of earthly goods. It was very expensive, Some would even say worth about a year's worth of her wages, but she would gladly give it to Jesus. She shows up to the party. She's watching the events unfold, and now she is scandalized. The Pharisees and the guests are shaming Jesus. They are embarrassing him. Why would they do this to such a wonderful person? And she's watching from the background, and and, and she's watching something breaks inside of her. She can only stand back for so long, but as she sees Jesus reclining at the table with those dirty feet, standing, uh, resting behind him. She just says, I've got to get out there and I've got to change this scenario. So she offers Jesus the hospitality that Simon refuses to give him. She even unravels her hair because she has no towel. She wants Jesus to know that she's totally devoted to him. She'd follow him anywhere because of all that he'd done for her. And much to her astonishment, After Jesus tells the parable, he he looks down into her eyes as he talks to Simon. And looking in her eyes, he says, Do you see this woman? Essentially, Simon, really look at her. Stop objectifying her. Stop categorizing her as that sinner. See her humanity. See her heart. The room goes cold silent. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but... She has anointed my feet with this costly ointment. Still focusing on her. He says these life-changing words that, again, just solidify everything that she's come to believe up to this point. He says, Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. A friend, don't misread verse 47. Jesus is not saying that her sins are forgiven because she did these loving things for him. Again, that would turn grace upside down on himself. Of course it's not about earning anything. This is all about her response to total forgiveness. You know, total forgiveness will heal your broken heart. It will teach you to love in ways you've never loved before. Isn't that what God promises in the Scriptures. Even going back into the Old Testament, this same God that we're reading about in this story said through the prophet Micah, once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and and throw them into the depths of the ocean. That's total forgiveness. God is essentially saying that through Jesus, through the Savior Jesus, I determined to so remove your sins from my consideration that it would require a submarine for me to drum them up again. And here's the deal about God. He's not interested in making that trip ever. Have you received the total forgiveness that this changed woman has received? How do you know? Well, in this story, we see two people who respond to Jesus, and there's a great difference. One will not allow loving Jesus to inconvenience him. He wouldn't let it cost him anything. He wouldn't be willing to put his reputation on the line. Another is willing to do all of those things because that's what love does. Love goes out of its way. Love sacrifices. Love risks its reputation. And that's what Simon missed. He missed the boat. He didn't want to risk anything to love Jesus. But here's the deal. In playing it safe, he might have lost everything. Verse 47, again, he who is forgiven little loves little. I like these words from C.S. Lewis, his thoughts on love. He says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Listen to this. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe From all the dangers of love is hell. Are you willing to risk loving Jesus much? Again, you will do that if you understand the depths of his forgiveness, because forgiveness teaches us more about love than anything else ever could. I think of a story of another young woman who felt like she could never be redeemed. When um, Shannon Etheridge was just 16 years old, an act of forgiveness changed her life forever. She was driving to school, and there was a woman on her bike. Her name was Marjorie. And as Marjorie was riding down the road, Shannon hit her accidentally, taking her life. Now, this completely consumed Etheridge with guilt. Of course it would. And, and, and she had many thoughts of grief and despair, and she even considered taking her life. And, and she was in courtroom settings where she was being held accountable for the situation. And she was on the brink of all of this until a healing response from Marjorie's husband, Gary, changed everything. Gary forgave the 16-year-old. He asked the attorney to drop all charges against her, and he probably saved her from a guilty verdict. Instead, he simply asked Etheridge that she would do one thing for him, that she would continue in the godly footsteps of his wife. He said, you can't let this ruin your life. God wants to strengthen you through this. In fact, I am passing Marjorie's legacy on to you. Forgiveness changed Etheridge and showed her the amazing love of God. And, And as she saw the amazing love of God, she grew tensely, intensely in love with Jesus. So that today she is a best selling author. She's written a book with this title, completely his Loving Jesus Without Limits. That book is aimed at helping women to overcome guilt and wounds in their life. Friend, as you think about God's forgiveness, as you look at this story, the unnamed woman in the, the city, Shannon Eldridge, as you think of her story, I also want you to realize that you've been forgiven much too. So, what is our call? What is our job? It's to love Jesus without limits. Let's love him in that way this week. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for the scandal of grace. We thank you that you loved us so much that you willingly came to our door Wrote the check for our mortgage by laying down your life, and you nailed that certificate of indebtedness to the cross. The Bible says that when we put our faith in you, we will be saved. I want to pray for this church that is scattered right now, Lord. We're not gathered. I know that some of us are dealing with many different things whether it's fear of this virus or the threat of unemployment or whatever it is right now, Lord. Ultimately, we know that our hope, our confidence completely rests in this Lord that we've looked at this morning and his great love. And so my prayer for this church this week is that we would love him much in response. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.